these things in Christ's name. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. I like it. Well, oh, it's fun. I know worship is fun. We're going to have a lot of fun this morning, I can tell. But uh, as we, uh, if you will, this week as you pray, I, I would also encourage you to pray for, there's a lot of, I think, 24 of our children, which means not students in, in middle school, but younger than that, three to fifth, third through fifth graders. We've got about 24 of them that went off to camp. I'm sure many of them for the first time. And so my prayer request is for those counselors and uh, pray that you will uh, be with them. But I know those kids are gonna have a great time. So uh, you can keep them in your prayers and just pray the Lord does great. Set some really foundation for those sweet children. We're looking at Luke chapter 20, verses nine through 19, as we continue our study through the gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verse nine through 19. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every day just naturally feeling selfless. I know Lydia does, I know that other people do, but not everybody wakes up just naturally feeling selfless, just natural in my nature, wanting to be kind to others. I don't always just want to be kind and I don't just naturally wanna forgive someone when they sin against me, especially when they're not even asking for forgiveness. I don't just naturally want to be subject to you, okay? The Bible says to be subject to one another. Well, I don't naturally want to be subject to you. I know these confessions are probably terrible to, for you to hear about your pastor, but it's just being honest. I am often the exact opposite of what I read in the scriptures. Love one another, bear one another, be subject to one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another. And so I would imagine that you often feel the same way. And when I read the scriptures, it tells me that you are just like me, that we are all sinful. And so what am I bringing this up for? Well, I'm bringing this up because it means that moment by moment, every day and many, many times all throughout the day, we have to make a choice. Do I submit to God's word? Do I submit to God's authority or not? Do I really, really trust that God's way is best? Am I going to be faithful? And the reason I bring that up is because today we continue on the subject of authority. We're going to be on authority for quite a while. Jesus stepped into the pulpit last week in the temple and began to preach. And they said, by what authority do you do this? Who gave you the right to stand up there and preached to us. And what we saw is that Luke's made it very clear by the authority of God, because Jesus is the authoritative word of God. He is the son of God, and he had every right to do that. But every day we are to live in submission to the authority of God in our lives. But every day, all throughout the day, we have to make a conscious choice. Will I do that? When you submit to God's authority, you're being faithful. That should be the aim of your life. That should be the aim of all of our lives, of my life, is to be faithful to God. And it's pretty simple. What does that mean? It means that God has expressed his will through the word of God. That's how we know his will. So his authoritative word to us 
is in the leather bound or in the electronic copy of the Bible. And so our aim should be to obey, to submit to his authority. That's what faithfulness is. And when you are faithful, God does his part and he blesses you in fruitfulness. He blesses you with the enjoyment of all of his fruit, the fruit of his good pleasures for you. And so you focus on faithfulness and God will handle the fruitfulness, but it all hinges on continually submitting to God's authority. And that's what Luke is focusing in on today. As he did last week, he said, what authority do you have? Just preach. Today, he's going to tell a parable. If you want to get the context, he was looking at the leaders last week and the leaders were saying, who gave you that authority? And now seeing that they don't submit to his authority, he shifts his attention to the rest of us, to the church. And he talks about the warnings. He gives us great warnings against not submitting to his authority. Lord, I ask for your help this morning. Would you help us all by your grace, help us to submit to your authority. Lord, I know that all of our hearts are sinful and tend to to be prideful and to want to get out from under your authority. And so this morning, we need you, Lord, to work powerfully in our hearts. We need your spirit to search our hearts and reveal areas of rebellion. Help us, Lord, to heed these dire warnings that you turn to the people and share this parable, which has a very fearful warning in it. So God, give us humble hearts to submit to your authority. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Jesus is going to turn to the people and tell a parable. And we're going to break it up with three scenes. We see the scene is the first section. We're going to see the servant. And then we're going to see the son. The scene, the servant, and then the son. Look at verse 9 where he sets the scene. Luke says, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. He says, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. So let's stop there and set the scene. During Jesus' day, it was the agricultural community. It was very common for someone who owned the land to allow someone else to to work the land, to farm the land. And as they farmed the land, they would be leasing that land. And so the way they would have the right to do that was to come to terms to provide a lease payment to the landowner. So the landowner, who may be a distant, uh, lived far away, would send an employee. In the Bible, it's called servants or slaves, but this term is used to be an employee in our modern day vernacular. So the landowner, who was far away, would send his servant to go to those who are called tenants, and they would work the land. And if things went the way they're supposed to be, that they would produce a fruit of harvest. And among that fruit, they would give a percentage to the servant who would take it back to the landowner and that would be payment for his lease payment for work in the land. And so that's the scene that this is the landowner. There was tenants working the land. Servants would come and collect the rent, which would be a fruit of the harvest, take it back to the landowner. That's the way it should work. So that's the historical context. But anytime you come to a parable, there's oftentimes a lot of squirrely interpretations of parables. 
people want to get real kind of, oh, this represents that, and this can be, and you can kind of make it say anything you want. Well, to protect you from doing that, you need to always get the textual context. So let's see the before and after, and in this section, what does the Bible actually say to kind of help us interpret it? Well, first, I want you to notice what Luke says. He says, and Jesus began to tell the people this parable. So that kind of helps us know, okay, this parable was told to the people. Jesus had been talking to the leaders. They said, by what authority are you doing this? He can tell they're not going to submit to his authority. So he turns to the people. So first of all, keep that in mind. This parable is a warning to the people. Next, in verse 19, Luke tells us the parable was against the religious authorities. So he's telling it to the people so they would hear the warning, but it's against the religious authority. He says the scribes and the chief priests, after hearing all this, they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So Luke's telling us that this parable is against the religious leaders, but it was to the people. Finally, we need to note something in your Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah 5 and many, many other Old Testament passages often use vineyard as a metaphor for Israel. Uh, we see it in Isaiah 5, we see it in many places, but for example, Psalm 88, the psalmist says to the Lord, you brought a vine, a vine out of Egypt, referring to Israel, brought them out of Egypt, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations of the promised land, and you planted the vine, Israel, in it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. And so Israel in your Old Testament is often referred to with a metaphor of the vineyard. This would be very clear in the listener's mind. So when Jesus talks about a vineyard, they are connecting real world examples of being in an agricultural community, but they're also having their mind that in the Old Testament, that they were living in the vineyard is Israel. It's them as a people. So that's the scene. Next, let's look at the servants. So in verse 10, we know what's supposed to happen. The landowner is supposed to send the servants to collect the rent, get a fruit of the harvest. Well, verse 10, when time came, the landowner sent a servant to the tenants, the ones working the field, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So what did they do? But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, well, then the landowner, what did he do? Well, he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully. Sent him away empty-handed. And in verse 12, what did the landowner do a third time? So he sent another. He sent a third servant. This one, they also wounded and cast out. So let's stop there. So what we see is in the parable, the tenants who were working the field, producing a harvest, were supposed to give a portion of the harvest, the fruit of the harvest to the servants who had come from the landowner to collect that as rent for working the field. And the landowner, the tenant, the servant would bring it back to the landowner and he would enjoy the fruits of the harvest of his own field. Now, if you think about it, these tenants 
should have been extraordinarily grateful for just having the right to even work their land because their whole livelihood depended on being able to produce a harvest and they didn't own any land. And so they'd come to the landowner and say, hey, would you be gracious to us? Would you be merciful and allow us to work the land and let us live off the land? Let us produce a harvest and live off because you own it all. And we know that you're the owner. We just are working in your fields. And in exchange, we're going to let you, we're going to give you a, a portion of the fruit of the harvest. And the gall, the audacity, the nerve of these tenants after the landowner being so gracious to them sends a servant to collect his, what he rightfully is deserving, and they beat him. They reject the servant. They abuse the servant. Not once. It wasn't just a fluke. It happened twice. What's the old saying? You know, first time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. Well, it happened a third time. And what we know from this, that it's a settled matter. These tenants are doing a takeover. These tenants don't want to be subject to the landowner's authority. They are saying it loud and clear. We are going to own this land. We're going to be in control. We're not going to be subject to you as a distant landowner. And so the, the clear message is they are resisting. They are rebelling. They are completely done with the landowner's authority. Now, when we look at the scriptures, we know that from all this information, if, if the landowner is God, the vineyard is Israel, whom God planted in the promised land and made them abundantly fruitful, who are the servants? If you think about your Old Testament and God delivered them out of Egypt, he planted them in the promised land, they were to live according to God's authoritative word and they were to be faithful and then they disobeyed, disobeyed, disobeyed. Who did God send? Prophets. The prophets were the spokespeople of God. They were the mouthpiece of God. When they spoke, they weren't just saying, oh, let me tell you some cool prophecy. Most of what they said was thus says the Lord. The Lord said, and then what they were doing, if you read your Old Testament, they were calling God's people back to their Bible. Their Bible at that time was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This was God's word. As you go from Deuteronomy to Joshua, what did Moses say to Joshua? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt do everything that is written in it. For in it, then you will have success. Then you will be fruitful as you submit to the authority of God over you. But if you walk away from that, then you will see grave consequences. And as they walked away from it, the prophet said, get back to the word of God. Put yourself back under the authority of God's word. Don't re rebel. Don't resist. Repent. And God will forgive and God will restore his fruitfulness among the nation. And so the servants of God were the mouthpieces of God. They carried the very authority of God. They were ambassadors of God. They were his agents. And so when Israel saw these servants, these prophets coming, what did they do? Oh, thank you so much for calling out my sin. 
I am so glad to hear what your message is. I will repent and I will submit and I will return to his glorious fruitfulness. Just like you do when someone points out your sin, right? No, they abused them, they killed them, they cast them away, they rejected them. Not once, not twice, but many, many, many times. Isaiah, just for example, is one of the prophets. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, you will not be listened to when you go. And so Israel had a pattern just like this, that they rejected God's call to them, God's gracious call to warn them, repent of your rebellion, repent of your sin. And yet time after time, they rejected the prophets and particularly the leaders. The leaders, the people were culpable for their own rebellion and their own sin, but the leaders are held to a higher standard. God holds leaders that he gives. He, God is the ultimate authority and he stewards some of that authority to different people as leaders. And those leaders are held to a higher standard than the people themselves. Be it government, we'll look at next week, be it church leaders, be it parents, be it husbands, be it different roles. If you have been stewarded, delegated some authority, then you have a responsibility to steward it knowing God is the ultimate authority. And so here we see the picture is a warning to the people, but it's primarily against the leaders. And so the people refused, but the leaders refused to hear God's prophets, and they rejected the prophets, they rejected the word of God. So the scene, the servants, and next we see the son. Look at verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, well, what should I do? They rejected my servants. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, hmm, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. That's revealing. That's their desire. It can all be ours. They threw him out in the vineyard and they killed him. By this time, surely everyone in this room knows who the son is. Surely everyone listening to the parable, as Luke records, knows this son is Jesus. In fact, at the baptism of Jesus, God spoke from heaven as Luke records. God said, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Exact same phrase, the beloved son is Jesus, the beloved son of God the Father. So God is the landowner and he sends his beloved son, who he says, surely he expects them to show a higher level of respect than they showed the prophets who carried the word of God. Jesus is the very word of God. And in the text, we see that he expects them, the tenants, to respect the son. That word respect the Bible dictionary says that the word respect means to show deference to a person in recognition of special status. Jesus has a special status. 
He's not just a prophet. He's the prophet of God. He is the very expression of God. Jesus said to to see me is to see God. To hear me is to hear God. To know me is to know God. He is the very essence of God manifest for us on earth. And his words were the very words of God. And all of God's will has been manifest through Jesus and preserved for us in our Bible. And so he says, you must respect, you must show deference in recognition of this special status. And what did they do? In the parable, he says, they took him out in the field and they killed him. And so the very people who were, this parable is against, Jesus is already saying, you're going to take me out in the field and kill me. Because you don't respect me as a son of God. You don't respect my authority of your life. And then he turns to the people and he says, do you hear what I'm saying? I.e., you are about to yell with them, crucify him, crucify him. Beware of this warning Jesus is saying, your leaders are leading you astray, but you're going down the tubes with them. So in anticipation of his own crucifixion, Jesus tells this parable to the people, warning them as he tells it against the leaders. So this parable, in essence, is a summary of the entire Bible up to this point when you get to the Gospel of Luke. God planted Israel in the promised land. And it was a beautiful opportunity for restoration. In the garden, God planted Adam and Eve, nestled them in the garden, and they had one thing to do. Just trust God. As the account unfolds, God made this and God is the one seeing what is good for man. God is the one providing what is good for man. God is the one seeing and providing. God is the one who sees what is good and provides it. And then an, a, an enemy slithers in and says, there's a better way. You don't have to let him be God. You can be God. You can decide for yourself what is good. You can decide for yourself. You don't have to submit to his authority. And they failed, they sinned, and their life unraveled, and all the blessings of God that they were enjoying in that trusting, obedient relationship were forfeited. And that's what happens in our life when we resist God's authority, when we turn our back on God. We walk out of his blessings. We walk away from his promised land. We walk away from his goodness and his glory. And what does God do? He goes after them and he restores them and he delivers them out of their bondage in Egypt and he plants them like a vine in Israel. He does in promised land. He does the planting. He does the tilling. He does the cultivating. He builds a hedge of protection around them. He sends the waters to rain. He makes them glorious. He makes them fruitful. And what do they do? They sin again. And God sends prophets. Beware. If you keep this up, 
There's a limit to what I'll put up with. So what's the point of the parable? Parables always have one main point. We see it in the second part of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's the point. Remember, this is specifically aimed at the leaders. The point is that God was rejecting them as the leaders of God's people. God says, I am done with you. And shortly in the New Testament, we see he replaces them with the apostles. Twelve apostles will be the leaders over God's people instead of the twelve leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel. Why? Because of their rejection of God's authority, their rejection of God's prophets, their rejection of God's son. This is what God does with people who reject his authority. We as elders of this church desperately need to know that's what God does with leaders of churches who resist the authority of God. Leaders of the church universal need to hear this warning. The word of God is the authority of the church. And if any leaders lead a church to ignore the word of God at the cost of their church, they will pay the price. But... It's against them, but he's saying it to the people. And the same is true for you and I in in your life, in my life, in our marriages. When we resist God's authority and we want to redefine how we're going to treat each other and we justify our sin against one another, we do this at our own peril. When we Students do this. We want to live the way we want to live. We want to be accepted in others' eyes. We all have been there, but listen to us. Old people, we have lived it, and we know it's not good. It leads to destruction. All of us need to heed this message. God's will is good for us. It's the promised land. It's the garden of Eden. It's paradise. And it's enjoyed to the extent that we live in a submissive, trusting relationship that fleshes out the fruit of obedience. So after the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, Jesus does exactly what he just said he's going to do. He's going to replace, he's given the vineyard to a new leadership. And in that new leadership, their job is the same. It's always been the same. Lead the people to do one thing, to submit to the authority of God over their life. Not to scratch whatever itches, not to tickle their ears, not to go with culture, not to make it palatable, not to make it easier to draw a crowd. Just preach the word. Just teach the word and tell the truth and let people taste and see how good God is. And that's our job. 
And when they heard this, they didn't say amen. They said, surely not. They said, surely not. In fact, they were in shock. Look what Jesus did in verse 17. They said, surely not. But Jesus looked straight at them, it says. He looked directly at them and he said, what then is this written? God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't replace our leadership. God wouldn't take the vineyard away. And he looked straight at them and he said, well, then why is it written in the word of God, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So he switches metaphors. My father-in-law is in the masonry business and if you've ever seen them laying stones, they're, they're trying to find the right stone to put next to the next stone. And, and so they're just kind of picking one up and casting it out, picking one up, casting it out, that one doesn't fit. And what he's saying is like a stone mason, they grabbed the cornerstone, threw it away, but in redoing that with Jesus, when you reject Jesus, you stumble to your death. You stumble to your fall. He becomes the actual foundation of the building. And anyone who rejects that foundation ends up finding themselves crushed by the foundation that all of life hinges on what you do with Jesus. And the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes and chief priests, they got the message in verse 19, for it says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, and that was not to pray for him. They sought to lay hands on him to kill him that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them. They got it, but they feared the people, so they didn't get to do it then. So the religious authorities get the point loud and clear. They just, Jesus just told them that God was going to crush them. They said, oh no, we're going to crush you. And they did. But little did they know that was God's very plan to die on the cross, to forgive sins for all of us who have rejected Jesus. This point that Jesus will become the foundation of his people the, the stone that the builders will reject will become the foundation, the cornerstone of his people is the same thing that Jesus told him in Matthew 16, 15. He told Peter, he said to them, who do you say that I am? Who, who do the crowd say I am? Okay, well, who do you say I am, Peter? What do you do with me, Peter? Jesus says, and Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, on that gospel, on that profession that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God, God says, I'll build my church on that foundation, and you either are in and safe and secure and fruitful and enjoying his blessings and his glory by faith in Jesus or you're crushed by Jesus in rejecting him. So God is the ultimate authority and he's made Jesus king 
over his kingdom. He has sent his word to you. He's laid it out in the scriptures for you. And he has said, build your life on my word. I promise that's the path to paradise. That's the path of blessing. That's the path to the best life. Submission to God's authority when everything in you wants to do otherwise. So here's the question for you today. What are you doing with the word of God in your life? Are you reading it, searching it out, knowing it carries God's authority? When's the last time you picked up your Bible and sought to understand it and say, God, I want to live according to your ways. What's your plan this summer to stay in God's word, to say, God, the scariest thing in my mind would be to drift away from your will. What do you do when a friend comes to you and says, brother, that's sin. Like the prophets, brother, that's sin. Do you say, thank you? Or do you abuse them? Do you say, get away from me, I don't wanna hear this. Do you understand that is a gift of God's grace to have a friend that would tell you the truth like that? What do you do with Jesus? Are you questioning him? Are you listening just from a distance like leaders, give him a little bit? Or are you submitting to Jesus? He is the very word of God. And he's warning us today, submit to his word. I invite you now to close your eyes and just listen to the reading of Isaiah 5. This is one of God's prophets who has given a warning to his people. Ask God to give your heart an openness to hear his warnings. Join me in inviting God to soften our hearts. Through Isaiah, God says, O now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done in it? Yet when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you, I tell you what I'll do in my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge of protection and it shall be devoured. This is what God does when he comes to his limits of patience. I will remove its hedge of protection and it shall be devoured, church. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down, church, family, marriage. I will make it a waste and it shall be never pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. Christian, unbeliever, church, if you continue to ignore my word, I will also command the clouds 
that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Lord, we have sinned against you. You have blessed us so richly. You have planted us. You have put a hedge of protection around us. You have watered us and fertilized us and made us enjoy all of your goodness. And yet, like the tenants, we want to resist your authority. We want to claim it to be our own. We want to reject your word. We don't like to submit. We deserve to be punished, Lord, but be merciful to us because of your son. Those of us who our only hope is that we have embraced your son to take our punishment for us. But Lord, give us hearts of repentance. Humble us with these warnings. Make us fruitful once again, Lord, to your own glory. Lead us down the paths of paradise, of blessing, of joy, the path of obedience. It's in Christ we cry these out. Amen. stand, raise our voice together and sing praises to the Ancient of Days.